Let's open the Scriptures together uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We'll also read some verses from Matthew chapter 1, but let's begin with Luke. Luke 1. We'll read the verses 26 through 56. Our text will eventually be in Matthew 1. We've been doing a series of sermons on the genealogy of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 1. We're going to focus on Mary, the mother of Jesus, this morning. So here we learn about how the Lord interacted with Mary. Chapter 1, Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of, his, of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 
We turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, page 1026, 1026, and we'll read the verses 1 through 25, or 18 through 25, rather, 18 through 25. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I may preach to you the gospel of the birth of the Savior from Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to focus on verse 16 in the, toward the end of this genealogy, this family tree. We'll just begin reading at verse 15. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come at last to the final lady mentioned in our Savior's family tree, his own mother Mary. We've seen there that in this whole genealogy there are five women mentioned. Mary is arguably the most famous of the five, probably the most famous in Scripture, the one that the angel Gabriel describes as highly favored by God. She's honored by Christians everywhere. She's even wrongly venerated and worshipped in some quarters. So well known and so well loved is Mother Mary. But who is Mary, really? How is it that she came to be in the Lord's genealogy? Besides that, what is the significance of the fact that Mary was a virgin when she conceived the baby Jesus? Both Luke and mention, mention, uh, both Luke and Matthew mentioned this detail, and Mary herself tells us that she was not yet married, she had not been with a man, yet God chooses this particular lady, this particular virgin to give birth to the Savior of His people. Why? And what is the message in that for us today? 
Well, we hope to discover that together as I bring you God's Word under this theme this Christmas Day, the Gospel of the Virgin Conception. That'll be our theme, the Gospel of the Virgin Conception. We'll see three things. It produces a call to all the little guys, a call to all the powerless, and a call to all the world. So if you were to look back over this family tree in Matthew 1 and compare it to just our text, verse 16, you would see that verse 16 breaks the pattern quite sharply from the rest of the list. For all the previous verses, we read that so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and then he was the father of so-and-so. But in verse 16, the pattern breaks. We read, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. So Joseph's fatherhood is not mentioned, as would be expected. But inserted in its place is the connection to Mary. He's the husband of Mary. Joseph is not cited as having a direct connection to the son, but rather an indirect connection to him through the mother as husband of Mary. Now, just keep that in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that point in a moment, but first let's dig into, okay, who is this Mary? We've seen with other, the other ladies in this genealogy that there's some kind of backstory associated with all of them. Tamar has a history with Judah, not a good one for the most part. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, has a history as the, the helper of the spies in Jericho. Ruth, mentioned in the family tree, she was a Moabitess who had a history as a faithful daughter-in-law to Naomi. And even Bathsheba has a history as the wife of Uriah, stolen by King David. But what is the history of Mary? What do we know about Mary? The answer not much. When you look through the Gospels, you find Mary mentioned in several places and described as the mother of Jesus, but remarkably, there's no backstory to her. Prior to the angel Gabriel showing up with his announcement, there's no event which involved her in any significant way. In fact, we, we don't even know, we're not even told anyway about her family of origin, her family background. Some people think that the genealogy in Luke 3, we didn't read it, but there's a genealogy in Luke 3, that that could be Mary's genealogy. But when you examine that carefully, you see that it's simply not the case. Luke writes there in chapter 3, Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, and so on. He never includes or mentions Mary. Mary's just not in the picture. For all intents and purposes, this, this, this young lady, Mary, she's an unknown person. She simply appears out of the blue on the pages of the Bible. And from the little we do know, she's a pretty ordinary person. We read in Luke 1 that she was a resident of the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Well, you might recall from earlier this past fall, 
in the preaching on John's gospel, that Galilee, we spent some time looking at Galilee. Galilee is that place in the northern part of the land with a bad reputation among the Jews down there in Jerusalem. Galilee was one of those areas that had historically been taken over by the Gentiles. It had been more or less overrun by Gentile invaders. And since that time, hundreds of years earlier, it had always existed as a mixture of Jew and Gentile, a blending of the, the pure race of the Jews with the non-Jews. So, for Jews in the South, the true blue Jews in the South, Galilee was always a kind of a source of embarrassment. The backwater place you didn't think much about and you didn't talk much about. And of the many towns and villages in Galilee, Nazareth was considered one of the most insignificant. It just didn't register. It was small. It was isolated. It had nothing impressive about it. Nazareth to the Jews was like Timbuktu to you and me. A place so remote, so tiny, so out of our thoughts, it's a place of no consequence. It was of this town, Nazareth, that Nathanael said to Philip, Philip who had just told him that Jesus came from Nazareth. Then Nathanael said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's how people thought about Nazareth in Galilee. So what do we know about Mary? Mary is a nowhere girl from sitting in a nowhere land. Your average nobody, your average little guy, we could say. Neither she nor Joseph had any money either, so that by the standards of the world, she would be easily looked over, the kind of person you don't give a second thought to. Now, on the one hand, it's very clear that she was a believer from how she responds to the angel Gabriel. She was sincere. She was a pious young lady. But in the eyes of a society that is impressed by pedigree, your heritage, impressed by place of residence, a society which judges you by your wealth and your status, all of that Mary did not have. All she is is a devout young lady who married a simple carpenter from Nazareth. Her story is a story that would never make a headline on the 6 o'clock news. It would never cause one tongue to wag at a campfire. What is remarkable about Mary, brothers and sisters, is that Mary is completely unremarkable. Just a simple girl of faith from a small town in an unimportant area of the country. Who cares about Mary? Well, the Lord Jesus cares about Mary. That's part of the gospel story, too, that the Savior of the world cares about little people like Mary and calls also those kinds of people into His salvation. Each of the women and the men mentioned in this family tree tells us something about the, the nature of the saving work of Jesus. We've seen that. He came to save the alley cats, alley cats like Judah. He came to save a bitter sister like Naomi. He came to redeem Canaanite harlots like Rahab, as well as hypocritical kings like David in Jerusalem. And now with Mary, we see that the Lord also gathers in the nobodies, the people of no consequence in this world, the little guys of Galilee and the little guys of Ancaster too. 
all those whom the world just passes over uh, who are of no account will never make the six o'clock news. Not for anything celebratory anyway. Jesus came for the little guys. Isn't that so very encouraging? Mary, she's a young girl, she's a teenager, maybe 16 years of age, a humble, simple, godly believer in Nazareth that nobody notices except the living God, except the Son of God who willingly descends from heaven to be conceived in her womb as a human baby. Mary's role as a human, as the mother of the Messiah is, is totally unique, of course, and no one can duplicate it, but her standing as a humble child of God, a simple believer who is neglected, who is marginalized, who is overlooked by the world, that is not unique to Mary. That's what she speaks about in her inspired response to Elizabeth, that so-called Song of Mary we read. He has brought down, that's the Lord, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and He has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich He sent away empty. That's a pattern. God is always doing that kind of thing, helping the poor believer, coming to the aid of the oppressed Christian, to those who are looked down upon in the eyes of the world. You can think of Hannah in the Old Testament, barren mother of Samuel. She was oppressed by the other wife of Elkanah. And after the Lord visited her with a child, Hannah's song, she sings a song too about exalting the humble and bringing down the mighty. Very similar to Mary's song. Or you could think of Uriah the Hittite, whom we spoke about yesterday, who was oppressed by King David, killed even. Consider the women that Jesus himself would later minister salvation to. Women like Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. Then there was Joanna. There was also Susanna. Some of these women living faithfully. One at least, Mary Magdalene, enslaved to the devil. But all of them of no standing in the world's eyes. All of them nobodies. All of them little guys. But for them too, Jesus had come. For them too, the Savior was born. He's come, brothers and sisters, for the faithful teenage girl in the church who will never be famous in this world. He's come for the young man who quietly serves his God by doing his homework and obeying his parents. He's come for the men and women who are considered throwaway by society. The Christ has come to call them all into a state of grace, to give them solid hope in a world that has no hope of its own. For all who understand they are powerless to save themselves, He offers them salvation. For both Luke and Matthew make clear that Mary, when she conceives at that time, she's a virgin. And she remains a virgin until the time of Jesus' birth. Mary, or Matthew rather, is quite pointed that Joseph had zero to do with the conception of Jesus. I mentioned earlier the pattern of describing who became the father of whom, that that is sharply broken in verse 16. 
And there's something else about verse 16 too. There's a change in the verb tense. Literally, the list has been saying, Matthew's been saying that so-and-so begat, that's the verb, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and that father begat a son. So the verb in the original is to beget, which means to cause a child to be conceived and ultimately born. So a man who begets a child has fathered a child by, by way of the mother. So all the verbs in the genealogy are listed in the active tense. It's a father that's taking action. Then something different happens in verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, that's active, the husband of Mary, here it comes, of whom was begotten Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now it's flipped around. It's in the passive tense. It's applied to Mary, of whom was begotten Jesus. Joseph is not said at all to beget, nor is Mary of herself in some strange way somehow begetting Jesus, but rather the begetting of Jesus, it happens to Mary. And Joseph is on the sidelines. Joseph is the son of David, but he has no part in fathering the Christ child who would later sit on David's throne. What Matthew has in brief here, Luke makes crystal clear, it was the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary and caused her to conceive a child. The conception of Jesus comes about by the direct working of the Almighty without the help of a man. That's critical. That means that Joseph, the rightful descendant of David, he becomes the father of Jesus by way of adoption. At the instruction of the angel, Joseph takes Mary as his wife and with that action accepts the child in her womb as his legal child, a legal heir in the line of Abraham and David, but in no sense is that child his biological son. That's a virgin conception. And brothers and sisters, that's very good news for us. It's the best news for what, what have we learned over and over again in these past few weeks about the line of Abraham, about the line of David, what have we seen but sin and failure from generation to generation? Abraham's great-grandson Judah joined the Canaanites and took up with a Canaanite woman, thought nothing of prostituting himself. Elimelech of the tribe of Judah shows a lack of faith by moving over his family over to the godless country of Moab. And David, the man after God's own heart, we saw that yesterday, plunges into one of the most ruinous and scandalous sins in the whole Bible involving adultery and theft, murder, lies, and more. And if you were to look at any of the sons of David down through the, the genealogy, had there been, has there been one son of David who lived up even to David's standard, that imperfect standard of David? Was there one of his boys who grew up to walk as, as close with God as David, or closer still? Was there one king in David's line who shepherded God's people with truth and justice, who loved them and, and led them fearlessly and faithfully in obedience to God's covenant demands and in dependence on God's covenant promises? Was there a single man? 
there was nobody in that whole line. And David was the best of the lot, and we saw what he did yesterday. Even the best cannot save themselves, let alone the rest of God's people. So the sad history of all those kings in Jerusalem is a history which reveals the powerlessness of humanity. We're powerless as humans to produce our own Savior. Sinners beget sinners. People fallen in Adam produce only other people fallen in Adam, corrupted by sin. And of themselves, of ourselves, we can never escape the grip of sin. We can never escape that rebellious, sinful heart. That's something the world makes clear still today. Though in its blindness, the world can't see it about itself. You know, our unbelieving neighbors, they, they're searching, always searching. They keep experimenting. They keep trying to discover ways to rid the world of its ills, to make the world a better place, to bring peace on earth. You can hear it in, I don't know how many songs on the radio. They're looking for the formula to put an end to war, to put an end to famine, to disease and da disaster. And many human lines, human families, have produced exquisite minds. Think of people like Einstein or Sachs or Gandhi or concerned hearts like Mother Teresa or fine doctors and scientists, too many to name. But no headway is made in wiping out all those ills. No headway is made in bringing salvation. At best, some of the symptoms are dealt with for a time. Certain diseases are put to rest, but other diseases pop up and take their place. And disasters, meanwhile, famines and earthquakes and wars, they continue to occur maybe even faster than before. And nobody has even come close to stopping death from happening. No human the world has or can produce, no group of humans, no society of humans can make this world a better place. Why? Because none has the ability, none has the power to deal with the root cause of all the world's ills that causes sin, that causes our own rebellious heart. Who can deal with that? What scientist is going to deal with that? Nobody can touch or heal the rebellious, sinful heart until the Christ child, until the gospel of the virgin conception comes through. God does something so utterly unique here. He interrupts the normal pattern, human pattern of begetting children in order to literally plant a child whose origin is in heaven, his divine nature comes from heaven. He enters into the virgin's womb. He takes on human nature from Mother Mary, but he is not the production of any man. He does not inherit from Adam that sinful nature we all inherit from Adam. The line of David is out of the picture here because it's useless to save. And Mary's own womb cannot produce it either. Her own womb on its own is empty, it has no power to fill itself. Neither Joseph nor Mary can 
can do that at Mary at best is a passive receptacle. She's passively receiving from God a child through which God then works the wonder of salvation. He brings into existence a child who has been son of God from eternity, but now taking on human nature, he becomes son of man. He becomes Jesus. He becomes the Lord Jesus the Christ. At last, a human child is born who has power, power to save someone who can save also the powerless like us. That means, brothers and sisters, you and I, we don't have to, like the world, we don't, we don't have to strive. We don't have to strain to get rid of the world's ills all on our own. We don't have to try to somehow save ourselves and straighten out our own mess. For that's why Christ was sent, to do what we could never do. Anyone who realizes that human efforts to redeem are useless in the end, you don't have to fall into despair. We need to fall into the arms of the Savior. He's got all the power to save. Every scientist who hits a dead end, every humanist who runs stuck with the hopelessness of humanity, every atheist who discovers he's got nothing to live for, every philosopher who concludes that there actually is no conclusion to life, no answer, every musician who runs into the emptiness of their fame, every actor too, every engineer who realizes that technology is no savior of mankind, every doctor who becomes alarmed that diseases and injuries do not grow less as time passes and cannot affect death, every person who hits the bottom of our limited human achievement and potential, the Christmas gospel is for all of them. You realize you're powerless? Come to the Christ. He's got all the power. The virgin conception is the proof that he has all the power. He is the only solution because he comes from above. He is God in the flesh, able to do what no mere human can do. And he was also faced with temptation to sin and never did give in. He suffered and died the penalty for our sin. And he rose to life again to remove from you and me the sting of sin and even death itself. Jesus is the only solution. And because of that, God sends the gospel call out to all the world. That sort of is hinted at in this genealogy as well as we stand toward the end of this family tree and we look back on the this whole list of names, we start to see certain themes and patterns. We've noticed along the way, we've been highlighting that in this series, the different kinds of sinners whom Christ saves and all the, the different kinds of situations He saves them from. We've noticed, too, that they are people who come from all positions of society. And did you also notice that there are a variety of ethnic backgrounds reflected in this family tree. Just in this genealogy, we have mentioned uh, Tamar, who's a Canaanite, Rahab, also a Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabitess, Uriah, the Hittite, 
all of them converted by God to become exemplary believers among the covenant people of Israel. And these little samples in the family tree, they're like signposts pointing forward to what the Christ child would come to do. And Matthew's gospel will spell it out. He was sent as a Savior not just to the Jews, but to all the nations of the world. Salvation certainly comes through the line of Abraham, through the line of the Jews, but it doesn't stop there. Because as God promised Abraham centuries earlier, all the families of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. That's Genesis 12. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 12. Through Jesus, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be blessed. They will feel the effect of redemption. They will hear the call of salvation, repent and believe. And when they hear it, people will come from all those people groups. That's what the Lord Jesus commanded His church before He went back to heaven. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's a Genesis 12 call. A response to Genesis 12. That's why the ascended Christ sent forth His Spirit upon the church on Pentecost Day so that as church we would be a powerhouse of blessing to the world. How would we do that? By witnessing to the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ brought. That's why the call goes out still today from pulpit to pew and from pew to neighbor. The call, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate to death on the cross. Why? So that the debt of your sin and mine could be saved. That's the best news, right? Your sins will be forgiven if you come to Christ. The way will be open for you and me to be on that new earth in glory with our God and all His people. In that sense, brothers and sisters, Christianity is a big tent religion. It's exclusive in this sense. You have to come in by faith in Christ. But it's inclusive in this sense. Anybody can do it. The call goes out to anybody. The, the Lord doesn't limit the call. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what standing you have in society. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background, what your language is, what your color of your, your skin is, your tribe, your language, your culture is no barrier for the Lord Jesus. Come to Him. Put your faith in Him, all of us. All we need to do, each one, is repent and believe in the Christmas child. The gospel of the virgin conception is for you and it is for everyone. Everyone. It's the only solution because He's the only Savior. Amen.